From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic is changing what it takes to get initiatives on the ballot this November. But as new petition drives get underway, that change is already being challenged in court. Then, how the age of COVID-19 is reshaping farming in Colorado, and how some farmers are selling their crops, like using a food truck named Mabel. An old vintage, essentially ice cream truck with bells that goes through the neighborhoods uh, selling bags of arugula and uh, bunches of carrots and loaves of bread. Plus, the job market is tight. It's even tighter for people in need of a second chance. How one company is trying to help. And Divided We Fall, a new documentary series out of Boulder that explores the political rift in the U.S. and what it may take to find unity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. In pre-pandemic times, getting an initiative on Colorado's ballot required a lot of direct contact with a lot of voters. That's because for a measure to qualify, the law mandated that people sign petitions in person. Obviously, during a highly contagious pandemic, that's not the safest of policies. So Governor Jared Polis has issued an executive order allowing a lot of the process to move online. But not everyone's happy about that. CPR's Binta Berkland is here with me to explain. Hi, Binta. Hi, Avery. So, Binta, what exactly does the governor's order do? It makes a big change to how to put a question on the November ballot. Right now, circulators collect petition signatures in person. Most people have probably seen signature gatherers standing outside a supermarket. And the executive order would give petition gatherers more flexibility to collect remote signatures. So that could be by email or by mail. August 3rd is the deadline for signatures, and it takes roughly 124,000 valid signatures for an initiative to make the ballot. Why did he take this step? Well, it's pretty difficult to gather in-person signatures right now because of Colorado's restrictions and social distancing requirements. Add to that, a lot of large public gatherings aren't happening. And Polis said he did not want this part of the democratic process to fall victim to the pandemic. It's about you. It's about the right of the people to petition to place something on the ballot. And because there is a public health emergency that makes the normal petitioning gathering next to impossible, it was absolutely critical that we honor the right of the people to place ballot initiatives on the Constitution. But it's already being challenged in court. By whom? We have two lawsuits. The first is a group that's trying to ban late-term abortions and put that question to voters this fall. They failed to get enough signatures and are in what's known as a cure period. The executive order excludes them, and they argue that it was politically motivated and that they should also fall under this new rule. And then we have an influential business group made up of CEOs from across the state that filed the first lawsuit. That's Colorado Concern. They said even in a public health emergency, Polis doesn't have the authority to unilaterally change the initiative process. Dan Ritchie is on the board of Colorado Concern and is the former chancellor of the University of Denver. And he says vital safeguards exist that go to the very heart of the integrity of the initiative process. And he said it reaches beyond the power of the governor, and that's why it has to be challenged. Why would business leaders care about how hard or easy it is to get things on the ballot? 
business groups regularly get drawn into ballot initiative battles and often have to spend millions of dollars campaigning against initiatives they don't like and that they support other initiatives. The Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce also weighed in and said the governor's executive order really disadvantages people who don't have Internet access, especially voters in rural areas. If they also feel it's unconstitutional. So what happens in court could have real ramifications. We could potentially have a lot of initiatives this year going before voters, but it may it may depend on what happens here. And I was just about to ask, what kinds of initiatives are in the works right now? There are several, especially on the topic of taxes and spending. Fair Tax Colorado has a proposal to increase taxes for the top 5% of earners and lower them for everyone else to generate $2 billion, and half of that would go to fund K-12 schools. Several conservative groups have a counterproposal that would lower the state income tax rate across the board. That coalition is also pushing a measure to require voter approval for any large fee increases. Another group, Healthier Colorado, is backing a tax increase on tobacco and nicotine and vaping products. And I do want to mention a big priority for Democrats is passing a paid family and medical leave initiative. And that was an idea that the legislature was hoping to pass during the session. So the paid leave measure could also go to the ballot, but it doesn't have to? Exactly. Democrats in the state legislature abandoned the effort to create a program earlier this year. Democrats have wanted to pass something for a while, and there's been different iterations of it. There was some disagreement about whether paid family leave should be a state-run program or a mandate on businesses. It was already going to be a heavy lift, and then came the new coronavirus The business community was opposed to it as it was drafted. So now the sponsors are throwing their weight behind the ballot initiative. Do you have any idea how soon we might see these digital signature gathering efforts start? It won't be for a few weeks. We've got a legal challenge, so we'll have to see what the court decides in those instances. The Colorado Secretary of State also needs to finalize the rules. Before I let you go, I want to check on something else big that's going on in state politics, the return of the legislature. State lawmakers are due back at work next week, but the last we heard from you, there's still a lot of disagreement about the rules they'll be working under when it comes to coronavirus precautions. Where does that stand? Yesterday, legislative leaders agreed on informal rules. Lawmakers will sit farther apart from each other to maintain social distancing. They may install plexiglass in areas of the Capitol where that's not possible. Public tours will remain canceled, but the building will still be open to the public. Masks aren't required but are strongly encouraged. The public would need to have their temperature taken before entering the building. People with a temperature higher than 100.4 would be encouraged to leave the Capitol. Thanks, Benta. Thanks, Avery. That's public policy reporter Benta Berkland. She also hosts CPR's weekly politics podcast, Purplish. The next episode, expanding on what we just talked about here, will be out Thursday. When we come back, how the pandemic is reshaping farming in Colorado and maybe the way we eat. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support CPR and help your fellow Coloradans at the same time. Right now, when you become a new member or add to your monthly giving, you'll provide a week's worth of groceries to a Colorado family, thanks to a partnership with the Colorado Health Foundation and five food banks across our state. Stay informed. Stay connected. You make it possible 
at CPR.org. We're meeting Coloradans who will shape the post-COVID-19 era. It's part of a series about people who are already reimagining their livelihoods and helping us find a new normal. Today, the future of farming. Many American farmers have faced dwindling markets as restaurants and schools have shut down. Some farmers have had to dump their products because they can't sell them. In Colorado, most crops aren't harvested until summer, so farmers have had time to plan. Robert Sakata owns Sakata Farms in Brighton. Eric Skoken is the owner of Black Cat Farms in Niwot and two restaurants in Boulder. They spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Robert, your dad started farming in Colorado. Today you produce onions, corn, wheat, and pinto beans. The COVID-19 outbreak has changed the way all of us live and eat. How has it affected your business so far? Well, we couldn't change our cropping plan. We had already had all our seed ready, and we had already started planting when this really broke out. So we're keeping our fingers crossed and hoping everybody practices that good social distancing that we don't have another flare-up so that restaurants, food institutions can open back up and we can get really the economy moving again. You know, a lot of our onions, for example, went to food institutions like Cisco, food service providers. So we're looking to see if we can gear up to do more the consumer side. Instead of our onions being packaged in 50-pound sacks, whether we can package them in, you know, the three and five-pound sacks that you see at the grocery store. So trying to think about other market options right now. What if the COVID-19 restrictions, or many of them, are still in place? Um, Restaurants aren't buying as many products. Institutions aren't buying as many products. What do you foresee? You know, I think we have donated quite a bit of product, and actually they've bought some of our product to food banks because I think everybody's going to be really struggling, and we already see a huge demand on food banks to help people out. So that may be an area where we'd be looking to try to sell some of our product to. Eric, why don't you tell us about your farm? You have a smaller local farm, is that right? Our farm is smaller, and we've been geared towards producing all the food in our restaurants in Boulder, the Black Cat and Bramble and Hare, and they're both closed. So the pivot for us has been we created an online store. That was really challenging. And second was we we started this seven-day-a-week farm stand. And then the third is that we've created a, a mobile farm stand. Mabel, we call it Mabel the Farm Truck, uh, an old uh, vintage, um, essentially ice cream truck with bells that goes through the neighborhoods uh, selling bags of arugula and uh, bunches of carrots and loaves of bread. So instead of you know, a full menu in the restaurants with various different vegetables. Now we have all of those same ingredients out at the farm stand that we started up early this spring. So it's been chaotic. It's been really difficult. Have you always sold direct to consumer along with providing for your restaurants? We have, but it's been the tiniest part of what we do. About 70% of our production goes into the two restaurants and only 30% has gone to a local farmer's market, the Boulder Farmer's Market, which incidentally, you know, had closed early. It'll open back up again. But we had experience in it. You know, we have the farmer's market tables and the tents and canopies. You know, we had the equipment. So fortunately, we didn't have to invent a brand new business and go through all those growing pains. And do you see a hit to your bottom line, even though you've been able to make some of these changes? That remains to be seen. We have revenue coming in and we have food moving out and we're up and running. It will not look the same financially for us. There will be a hit. 
and it's hard to say right now because we're sort of in the R&D phase. We're so new at all of this stuff that we're doing, and we're making mistakes left and right and revising the business plan as we go. You know, hopefully when, when we get good at what we're doing, in the end, we'll, you know, at least be able to break even. And then we'll have learned more and we'll be in a better position, you know, next year for the next growing season. And Robert, how about you? Are you anticipating a hit to your bottom line or is it just still the unknown? Yeah, it's still the unknown. I mean, there's just like probably Eric and all growers around here, we're seeing a huge amount of it. Additional expenses, just this morning I was trying to find plexiglass, and, you know, it's in short supply. And Plexiglass to protect workers who are on the farm? Yeah, exactly. You know, at our main office, we want to put up a plexiglass, so when we do start hiring people, that there's protection there. And then in our facility where we sort the onions, putting up dividers between employees. And so, so there'll be additional expenses, and we'll see, hoping that the market will be there in the fall. What have you heard from other mid-sized and even larger farmers about what they're doing? Everybody has facing the same challenge and then just the unknown and not knowing what's going to happen. And Eric, how about you? Other farmers, are you communicating with them? I am. And the people that are in our market, this direct consumer part of the overall food picture, have seen a really strong uptick in sales. And I think in the end, we still have the same, roughly same number of people in our community, and we all get hungry at the same rate. It's just that the way in which we need to get food instead of happening from institutions is now happening in different directions. And you know, a lot of that demand is swung over towards the farm stand and direct consumer. You know, there's, there are people who are concerned about going to the grocery store you know, we all feel, I think, pretty exposed when you go to a crowded grocery store. So it's really, it's all the same food and it's all the same community, but it's just happening in a different way. Robert, uh, your family has a rich history in farming. Your father was born in San Francisco in World War II. His family lost everything, was ultimately sent to a Japanese internment camp in Utah. Um, And then uh, Colorado's governor at the time, Ralph Carr, welcomed Japanese Americans to the state. Your dad started farming in Colorado. And I wonder what made you stick with the family business, despite, you know, the hardships and particularly now uh, many of the unknowns that come with farming. Of course, growing up on the farm, working on the farm all the time. When I graduated high school, last thing I wanted to be was a farmer because I thought, boy, this has got to be an easier way to earn a living. And so instead of going to the our land-grant college, Colorado State University, I went to CU and studied biochemistry and eventually worked for Amgen when they had just a research lab in Boulder. When I graduated high school, I had high aspirations. I thought, you know, I want to win the Nobel Peace Prize for finding the cure for cancer. And kind of came to the full circle realization that, gosh, you know, back on the farm where we were growing fresh fruits and vegetables, maybe that's the answer and was welcomed back to the farm and have been there since. And Eric, how about you? What drew you to farming and why do you like it? Well, I've been a a chef, you know, for forever. That's how I worked my way through college. So, you know, as a chef, you know, you have a great idea and then you you order some order some food that comes through the bigger you know system, and it takes a while for that food sometimes to make it to you. And um, all at the same time, I was a gardener at home, so I would look at uh, my fresh peas that I harvested ten minutes ago versus the peas that would you know come in through the big system to the restaurant, and I could see the quality difference. And that led me to think, you know what? Maybe I'll just make my garden a little bit bigger. 
so we expanded the the garden into a small farm and then the small farm into a slightly bigger farm and and I love it. I love being on the tractors. I love the complexity of what happens at the farm. I love the food. And ultimately, the mission has been, you know, can we harvest, you know, peas and get them into the restaurant or now get them out to the farm stand? You know, can we do that in in an hour or two hours or three hours? And gardeners know this. You know, when you stand in the garden, you eat a cherry tomato off the vine, you know, you know, how good it is. And that's always been my fantasy to have give everyone that experience. Chef Eric, I'm jealous. That's fantastic what you're doing. I mean, growing up, you know, when we were growing sweet corn, I would actually roast the sweet corn on the exhaust manifold of the tractor. And like you said, just eating stuff fresh picked is just so much better. And and I, I hope that we can make that connection again back to local produce because I think you're right. You're losing that freshness and that value the longer that it's staying on the truck and the more that it's traveling. And uh, it is really special that when you can fresh pick and eat something right out of the field. And how do you think Americans' relationship with food and how they buy it will change after this pandemic, if at all? Yeah, I hope it does. I mean, that's partly why we got out of a lot of the vegetables, because you look at USDA numbers right now, and more people in the past were eating at home. I mean, when I was growing up, people would look forward to sweet corn when it was in season in Colorado. I mean, we could never, where we're at, we could never have corn ready for the 4th of July. It was usually the end of July is the earliest we could have it available. But the people still looked forward to it because they knew, oh, our Colorado corn will be coming into season. But now that our infrastructure has gotten so efficient that, you know, we can have corn here in Colorado from Florida or from California, from Texas, and and people are enjoying it for Fourth of July. They've kind of lost that connection of what's produced locally, and I hope we can reinvigorate that again for that flavor and the taste, and to support the diversity. I've always said that the diversity of agriculture is so important that just like in times like this, if we're relying on all of our, for example, I think like 95% of the winter lettuce is produced in Arizona. If something happens, all of a sudden the whole country is short of something. So. I hope that the consumer will begin to want to make that connection back to where their food is coming from. Eric, what do you think? Well, I'm seeing a resurgence of, you know, people cooking at home. And that's my hope that uh, for a silver lining in all of this, in terms of the food, what we're going through, everyone is going through right now is challenging and really, frankly, miserable. But if there's a silver lining, it might be that we come out on the other side as a more intelligent, skilled, you know, a deeper, richer community of cooks and people who really love and appreciate food. And ultimately, for all of us producers, having knowledgeable consumers that we're selling to, like that always, you know, makes everything better in the end. Thanks to both of you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. My colleague Andrew Dukakis speaking with two Colorado farmers. Robert Sakata owns Sakata Farms in Brighton. Eric Skokin is owner of Black Cat Farms in Niwot and two restaurants in Boulder. In the months before the pandemic, a time when there was 3% unemployment, employers often complained that committed workers were in short supply. But since COVID-19, there are clearly plenty of people hungry for work, and there are fewer jobs. An organization called Activate Workforce Solutions helps connect people with work. Many of their clients have been laid off or need a second chance. Helen Young-Hayes recruits and trains the talent. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
it seems like your task helping people find and keep jobs just got a lot harder the last couple of months. First, who do you work with? Activate is a people-centered recruitment and coaching firm. Our mission, quite simply, is to help people achieve economic freedom through the dignity of work. And so we actually act as a bridge and we connect great talent from untapped populations to great employers with full-time, full-benefit career path opportunities. Activate also coaches. We coach people and we walk alongside them for the first 12 months of their employment to teach them the life and the professional skills that are really necessary to thrive in this new career path opportunity. Tell me what you mean by untapped populations. Individuals who come from talent pools that are typically overlooked. And so they might come from immigrant and refugee populations. They might be minorities. They might come from intergenerational poverty. They might simply be overlooked and underemployed in today's economy. How do you identify potential employees? We partner with over 30 nonprofits in Denver, all who serve people from vulnerable populations. Those include the Denver Rescue Mission and Cross Purpose and Warren Village and Women's Bean Project and others. They send to us individuals who are hungry for change and who are serious about finding a better future for themselves. When they send us talent, we interview the talent as if we were our employers. We recruit into large employers like Course Tech and Encore Electric and First Bank and Denver Health. And we screen and vet individuals for job readiness, job eagerness, and job fit. And how do you get a sense of who's going to work out in a job? My secret superpower is spotting hidden potential. <laughs> and so when, when I spent 20 years on Wall Street, I spotted hidden potential in multi-billion dollar companies. And now I spot hidden potential in the undiscovered talents of the people that we serve. We look for work ethic. We look for initiative. We look for follow through and we look for coachability. And when we can find individuals with those attributes, with those mindsets, then we connect them with their perfect career. Sometimes it's a career that they never imagined themselves being in and succeeding in, but we help people see who they can become, and then we connect them with that future. Can you give us an example of a client whose potential was, as you say, untapped? Sure. We recently placed an individual who is a single mom, an immigrant from Africa, She has a BS in chemical engineering, she has an MBA, and she recently completed her master's in information technology. All of that and an incredibly professional, intelligent, articulate woman. She, however, being an immigrant, was underemployed, and when we met her, she was working part-time at the Amazon warehouse. We connected her with one of Denver's largest employers, we quintupled her income, and now her two young children are going to be college-bound. We have another one of your success stories actually here with us today. He's calling on break from work where he's an apprentice electrician, Jared Kelly. Hi, Jared. Hey. How long have you been working as an apprentice electrician? Since June of 2019. Tell me a little bit about your journey getting there. So 
I came from the Denver Rescue Mission. I was kind of at like my wits end on how I was going to be able to get into a solid career. And I knew that I needed external help. So basically, yeah, that's how I ended up where I am now. (laughs) And let's back up even further. Uh, Before you were at the Denver Rescue Mission, I understand that at one point in your life, you found yourself on the street. And I hope you don't mind my asking, how did you get there? When I was a young adult, I ended up having some pretty severe substance abuse issues. And um, yeah, I was basically just kind of out of control. Um, Didn't really have very much ambition at the time and was just kind of floating around in between different kind of dead end jobs. So and what did those days look like for you? Um, so I'm a recovering heroin addict. So I have almost two years of sobriety now. Um, so I'm everything, no alcohol or anything like that either. So, yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, and then during that time, how did you go from being on the streets and using heroin to going to the Denver Rescue Mission? Yeah. So I ended up getting into quite a bit of legal trouble in early 2018. And um, I had to spend a little bit of time in jail and it actually kind of cleared my head and made me realize that I was wasting my life, essentially. And the Denver Rescue Mission at the time offered, it was a one-year program, uh, six months you worked on like lifestyle classes and everything like that. And then the other six months you were able to live there rent-free and you know become employed and start working and save money. So whenever you transitioned out, you were able to have a place, a lot of maybe your previous debts paid off, so on and so forth. So, And Helen, you met Jared while he was a resident of the Denver Rescue Mission. I assume with your secret superpower, you saw something special in him. Well, you can't really say that someone is one of your favorites, really, but I will say that Jared is one of my favorites. Um, Jared is, first of all, as you can tell, he's off the charts in both IQ and EQ. Super gifted. He's humble. He's honest. Jared is tenacious. When we met him at that time, he had been working 16-hour days at the mission, putting in extra time in work as therapy classes. And when we got to know him, we realized very quickly that here is a young man who is hungry for an opportunity and ready for a challenge. And Jared, you've been working with Helen for a year, not just on getting the job, but also on soft skills. What kind of things did you learn to get a job and then keep it? That's something that we could talk for hours on. Um, (laughs) It went so far into depth to where it came down to like financial budgeting, even personal goals were also a huge part of the coaching. What kind of goals have you reached? Countless. I mean, I'm in a career that I absolutely enjoy going to do every single day. Um, I love the company that I work for. They've been extremely fantastic. For years, I wanted to move back down to Colorado Springs because it's where I'm from. And that's something that I was able to accomplish. I ended up having quite a bit of debt um, accumulate before I went to the Denver Rescue Mission. And I have over 65% of that paid off now in a time frame of 13 months. So that was another huge, huge thing for me. Um, No longer have any kind of like legal issues anymore. I've been off of probation since August of 2019. So I mean, it's when I started this, I basically had nothing. And I have, I don't want to say I have everything now, but it's in sight. So Those are some really big accomplishments. 
Um, I want to bring in another guest, uh, your boss, actually, Jared. Willis Widell is the president of Encore Electric. He's hired five people, including Jared, through Activate Workforce Solutions. Hi, Willis. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Willis, how has business been at Encore Electronics since COVID-19 hit? Um, It's been pretty chaotic. Um, I spend a tremendous amount of my time now dealing with how we're going to keep people safe and how we're going to deal with the impacts of what the virus is doing to our business. But it has uh, actually been, uh, we've been very busy, extremely busy. So we've been very fortunate and very blessed about that. Now, it can be really hard for someone who's spent time in jail or been incarcerated or had a drug charge to find a job. How do you think about hiring people whose background, they need a second chance? We have always, and I have personally felt very strong about giving people that opportunity when they really want a career or they want to change their life. Uh, It's a perfect match for us that Activate is looking for the people that uh, Helen described earlier of that person who wants to work, wants to work hard, um, has character, has uh, many of the behaviors that we're looking for within the core values that we preach every day, and a willingness to do things uh, uh, like taking care of the customers that we do work with every day. That's really important to us. It has given us an avenue to really, I think, satisfy the needs that we have for manpower and also do it in a way that somewhat gives back to the community and, and also enhances the meaning of work that we promote every day. Helen, I'd love to understand a little bit more about your own story. Your parents were Chinese immigrants. Your dad was a professor at Mississippi State University. And you grew up in Starkville, Mississippi, during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. What did those experiences teach you that you bring to your work today? Growing up in a small town in Mississippi and being the first Asian-American girl in my small public high school was absolutely defining for me. My parents, being Chinese immigrants, modeled hard work, a love of education, the strength and power of family and faith. And so I was really blessed to have the best role models that one could have. In one generation, my family went from being financially penniless to having four kids graduate from Yale. We really are. I I really am the embodiment of the American dream. And yet growing up in a segregated Mississippi, I saw up close the tragedy of the economic and social inequity that African-Americans have suffered in the South for so long. And so from a young age, I determined that one of my core values would always be to help those who are most vulnerable, to invite them to have a seat at the table. And so through the years... I have expressed that desire for service and caring for our neighbors who haven't been as fortunate as I am through um, starting orphanages in Kenya or helping underprivileged youth in Harlem and serving on the board here locally of Mahai Ministries. But I never thought that I would actually turn that vocation into a career. Now, we can't talk about business without talking about COVID-19 right now. Ellen, how does this change your recruiting work? Well, COVID actually brought everything that we do to a grinding halt. 
none of our employers were hiring for obvious reasons. And yet, at the same time, a tremendous, tremendous influx of talent from very vulnerable populations. And so we have been sitting here sort of poised and ready to launch talent when the economy reopens and when our employers and new employers are ready to hire. So we feel the burden of our mission even more urgently than we did before. Thank you so much, Helen, Jared, and Willis, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you. Helen Young-Hayes is the founder and CEO of Activate Workforce Solutions. Jared Kelly got a job at Encore Electronics through her service, and Willis Wydell is the president of Encore Electronics. Colorado Concern, a business group which represents more than 130 CEOs in the state, announced a formal partnership with Activate Workforce Solutions last month. Up next, finding unity amid political diversity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's almost time to turn the page with Colorado Matters. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We chose a book different generations can read together. All the Impossible Things is a magical story about a girl in foster care. Now, on Wednesday afternoon, you're invited to a virtual reading circle with author Lindsay Lackey. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. In today's incredibly divisive political climate, what happens when people from different parties with different backgrounds spend a weekend together discussing some of America's most polarizing topics? If you're in Camp A, B is the enemy, and if you're in B, A is the enemy, regardless of what you say. That's the reason why things are so bad, and that's the reason why things aren't changing, because we're not talking about it. You know, nobody's doing anything out of, you know, malicious intent. 99% of the stuff out there is propaganda anyway to make us hate each other. I want data on what do all Americans, if you pull Americans, what do we truly agree and disagree on, and I think we'd be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. That's from the new documentary series, Divided We Fall. It aims to bring Americans together, not necessarily to change any minds, but to find some common ground. The documentary makes its national premiere tomorrow on American Public Television. One of the filmmakers behind the project, Tom Cosgrove of Boulder, is here. Hi, Tom. Hi, Avery. You set out to make a little a bit of a reality series that takes the entertainment out of pro- politics. Can you explain that a bit more? How do you see entertainment playing a role in today's political system? You know, back in the mid-1980s, an author named Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he theorized that television turned everything into entertainment. Eventually, uh, it would turn news into entertainment, and therefore news would become disinformation. And so much of our culture is built around entertainment. Like we can't go a minute without looking at our phones or playing a game or turning something on that that has kind of consumed our culture. And back in the summer of 2016, my co-creator, Larry Anderson, and I were working on another project and we were witnessing this. And we witnessed a part of that that was coursing our culture through, let's call it the reality television uh, lens, where... You know, we had all these shows that celebrated all these fears and anger and divisiveness and greed and jealousy, and that that had seeped into our politics. And that in the long run, to be a democracy, to have that 
those viruses in our in our body politic was dangerous, and we wanted to do something about it. And the full title of this documentary is called "Divided We Fall, United with That." rather unity without tragedy. And you say you could say that this whole world is going through tragedy right now, but tell me a little bit about why you think that it's important to find unity in normal times. So in one of the exercises that we do when we brought our cast together, and we filmed two, you know, people who watch the show will see these two different groups, generationally divided, Gen Xers and millennials, equally divided in their politics. Um, we had a conversation that included people sharing their most proud moment in their lifetime as an American. And in the Gen X cast, um, eight of the 12 in the cast shared those moments, those weeks after 9-11. And there was this hunger in the room to experience a united country again, that sense of unity. And as the conversation played out, there was a lament that we only seem to do that in moments of tragedy. And shouldn't we be able to do that without that? And I think that's one of the things that the pandemic has created, this sense that we're all in this. Uh, everybody's got a role to play. Everyone has a consequence at some level or another. That's not saying there's equal consequence from the pandemic. But what do we do in this moment? And what do we do with this moment when we come out of it? And what we noticed and found in our show is that that hunger to be there, to be unified, exists in let's you know, I don't want to, let's call it normal times without tragedy, but without a terrorist attack. It's just that we don't uh, we don't cultivate that in our culture. And you mentioned those two different casts, and I want to talk a little bit about how this worked. You recorded in two locations, Massachusetts and Chicago. Both groups were diverse in terms of education and political affiliation. The folks in Massachusetts were Gen X and the participants in Chicago were millennials. How did you get people talking about these topics? You know, getting people to talk isn't hard as getting people to listen. And, and so we, we created what we called a conversation choreography for our weekend. So all 24 people in the show answered a call to be part of a documentary series filmed over a weekend that they would be with us from 3 p.m. on Friday to 3 p.m. on Sunday. And anything we recorded was going to be ours to use. Uh, you know, we had dozens of hours of footage of people in conversation in pairs, in small groups, and as a group of 12. And what we found was that when we allowed the, the cast members to create their own rules for conversation for the weekend, which we do early in the weekend, we do our dinner on Friday, that they hold each other accountable to those rules and abide by them. And I, I would say that's more like norms of conversation, not rules. So people were coming up with their own norms for these conversations. What kind of rules or norms did they come up with? So, you know, agree to disagree. Listen with active listening. Uh, don't interrupt. Uh, our Gen Xers had a, had a great time debating what whether swearing should be allowed, and if so, <laughs> how and what words, and as long as it wasn't pejorative against the person in the conversation you were with. Um, you know, and like I said, it's, it didn't take long for that conversation to take place, you know, 15, 20 minutes in each group, and they knew how they wanted to hold each other accountable and hold our hosts accountable to it as well. And what would you say is the key thing here to make these conversations work and actually get people to listen to each other without having their defenses up? So Larry Anderson, my co-creator in this, made an observation recently that what we had were people who listened with curiosity, not animosity. 
And that's kind of uh, sums up the whole show if you watch it. And there are parts when you watch the show that are hard, whether you're on the left or the right. There are moments that are going to make people uncomfortable. But it's watching how the arc of the story and where people ended up connected after just spending a weekend together. And I think inside that, what we saw was that when when our cast, and I think it's reflective of people in the country, when we see each other in person and can connect with our humanity before we decide to put our politics in the room, that sense of unity exists and people will seize it. And how much did people know about the premise of the show before they agreed to be a part of it? All they knew was that it was about what it meant to be an American, the divides in the country, and how we might bridge them. And then they, the you know, the hundreds of people who applied to be in this, then engaged with us in a casting process where they answered a series of, of, of questions and essay questions, and then eventually interviews with Larry and I, um, um, to for us to narrow it down to the twelve we picked in each place. And I do wonder if people knew that they're going to have conversations a bit like these. It seems like that could self-select people who are already willing to talk through their different convictions. What light do you think a documentary like this sheds on how to get Americans to start listening to each other? Well, you know, one of the things about this, and there are, there, there are an awful lot of organizations around the country that do a lot of good work bringing people together. And most often when people show up for a workshop, they've self-selected to be in it. This was a mystery enough that people didn't really know what they were going to be a part of. The first group thought they were applying to be in a reality show, the second group in a documentary series. And we, you know, we believed the way we put the casting process together, that we just found some ordinary Americans that were willing to both be seen and be heard in conversation. And that's, you know, that's a challenge for people to put themselves honestly into a conversation. Now, there's something interesting that happened at the climax of this documentary. You have the group's answer, how can we pursue a more perfect union? And borrowing from that phrase in the Constitution's preamble. And something surprising happened. Red and blue groups came together with very similar answers, right? Yes. I mean, the first, the Gen X cast um, uh, had conversations about, we did, we broke into two small groups for the uh, for that conversation, two groups of six, and they chose to be in their uh, in their divide group. Uh, and yet, when they came back together, they found common ground on that every American ought to have access to health care, education, and housing, which was pretty phenomenal when you think about it, when it across the divide, that those goals or aspirations as a country were agreed on on both sides. In Chicago, um, the small groups were divided, equally divided among people on both sides of the red and blue divide. And each room had different ideas, but when they came back as 12, they all embraced them. And so the need to sort of have a moment in our country where we acknowledge and appreciate what slavery has done to our country, uh, the idea of having a national holiday uh, for Election Day, those were ideas that were agreed with by total group. So there's some real core core shared values. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, and one of the things we liked about that exercise about uh, imagining today those aspirational, that aspirational challenge of the Constitution of what's the, what do we need to do to pursue a more perfect union, 
was they based their outcomes on dialogue and not on demonization of each other. And so harder to imagine Congress right now in a conversation on how to pursue that than the American people in that conversation. Now, there's also an interesting exchange in the film when the Chicago Millennial Group is asked what their least proud moment was as an American. For me, it was when Obama got elected, not because of his color, because of the people that came out to vote and did not study things or ever vote in any type of politics or anything. They just went, they saw a color, they voted. I think it's offensive that we say people only did that because he was black, but there have been other black candidates who have run before people did not get behind. You're, you're, you're denigrating a group of people who are primarily African-American and saying they only vote for somebody because of their skin color, when in the history of this country, most people get privileges because of their skin color. Did it surprise you how the group worked through contentious moments like that? Well, I don't know if surprise is the right word. Um, with both of these weekends, they were experiments. We didn't go in knowing what the outcome was going to be. With the first cast, by the time we got into lunchtime on Sunday, they'd already organized a reunion weekend three weeks in the future on Cape Cod and eight of the 12 went. Um, and that inspired us to do it again. In Chicago, when we got to the end of the weekend, emails and phone numbers are being exchanged and this hunger, hunger to connect. And that that moment you pulled out of Ernest and Kimberly in conversation, um, um, it, by the end of the weekend, that, that would have been a different conversation. And you, you could see it in different moments as people on extreme opposite sides on issues and um, in uncomfortable moments, we're still able to see each other as human beings. And what would you say to people who think these conversations need to happen at a macro level to really make any systematic change in the country, especially considering how much money is put into political campaigns and how divided politics are right now? Some may think there's too much incentive to keep the war going and keep people divided. Clearly, there are incentives for divisiveness in America, right? I mean, we have a whole cultural book built around contempt at the moment. We see it nightly on cable news. Leave this conversation and go on social media and you can find it in an instant. Uh, we created a television show because television has been a medium that has modeled behavior um, for decades. And it is still the most accessible way to see difference. And so our hope in this show is that people will identify with members of our cast and watch the journey that they've taken through the course of this show and think, wow, that looks pretty good. It looks like it feels really good. I want some of that in my life, too, or in my community, too. And so it's being on television is our way of lifting up to a mass scale. And we wanted to use the show to spark a national unity moment. We had plans in the works to host that early next year, January of 2021. The virus has interrupted that at the moment. Uh, we still want to try to create that. We think creating a, uh, a, a specific day where Americans can come out and be in a conversation with each other in their own more perfect moment conversations. We can envision in what this country can be if we're unified, 
versus nightly seeping into the divisiveness and the contempt that we see on cable or we see on our social media feeds. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Oh, my pleasure. Boulder filmmaker Tom Cosgrove created the documentary Divided We Fall. It releases nationally tomorrow, and you can stream it now on Rocky Mountain PBS website. Finally today, new music from Denver artist Claire Haywood. My crown is a girl was a shining braid that I weaved into a python. I heard that life was an empty page that men would want to ride on, ride on. Singer-songwriter Claire Haywood is first and foremost a poet. Her journey began with pages and pages of poems, which she turned into music after taking voice and guitar lessons online. Only after a few years, she established herself in the Denver music scene. 303 Magazine calls her a voice that refuses to go unnoticed. So it goes. Denver's Claire Haywood with Old Souls Motel. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. You're listening to CPR News. Don't miss the turnout.